And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, our favorite, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is co-author of California Crack Up and the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. He is Sokolow's California editor and a fellow at the Center for Social Cohesion at Arizona State University. In addition, Joe is a contributing writer for the Los Angeles Times, lead blogger at NBC's California site Prop Zero, and co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you so much. We've had a sort of year-long search for democracy, and that's led us to conclude that it's in Bakersfield. Um, uh, you know, we, we, this has been a, a long series. We talked about citizenship in LA, social isolation in Fresno, vigilance in San Diego, diversity in Riverside. We even dared to talk about civility in San Francisco. And most erratically, we had a program about whether democracy moved too fast in, of all places, Sacramento. Um, but we are really saved the best for last for you. Um, we have two scholars here um, uh, who have thought as much about campaigns and elections as um, not just anyone in California, though they're both Californians, but um, in the country. The question tonight is sort of about uh, costs and the, and the presidential campaign. Uh, you know, and, and we will talk certainly about uh, uh, issues of money uh, from campaign donations to, to high finance. But um, really, we're, we want even more broad conversation about costs, the costs of our presidential campaigns to our elections, to our governance. Um, and this is going to be a very freewheeling kind of conversation. Um, and we're also very lucky in that we have two speakers here who have both written books. And they're not just any books. These are both great books, big books that, um, in the case of Rick, uh, you know, really is the work of more than a decade, and in the case of Sam, is the work of decades, literally, uh, in the making. My only regret about this is that we're not doing this on Halloween, um, because these are sort of scary good books. They're both good and they're a little bit scary uh, when you read them, You've, for, for different reasons. But let's get into it. I'm going to start with Sam. Sam's a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, he's been a consulting analyst to uh, presidential campaigns, consultant to political parties in Canada and in Europe, to the departments of state and defense. Um, and uh, again, this is his new book, The Candidate, What It Takes to Hold and Win the White House. Now, because I'm a news person and, and I don't want to get too far in the news, you know, we're in the high presidential debate season. Um, and so before we get into some of the broader themes, I have to ask you about a point in this book where you personally enter the narrative, um, because it turns out you have not always been Sam Popkin. Uh, you were uh, one sort of dark night in Camp David in 1980. You were Ronald Reagan. And, and I wanted to ask you what it was like to be Ronald Reagan and, and what you learned about Jimmy Carter in the process. Well, uh, thank you very much, Joe, for in, uh, <clears throat> inviting me. But I always thought I was trying to be a public intellectual. Now I find out I'm a public square, which is much more in line with what my kids tell me. Um, in 1980, I was working as the analyst doing the heavy lifting and the polling for the Carter campaign while Pat Cadell was working with the message people. And I had studied Ronald Reagan. And so when it was time to have a debate, I was brought to Camp David with everybody to play the role of Ronald Reagan because I knew his work. And 10 years later, when an article was written about the debates, the reporter gave me the tapes of the, the practice debate sessions. And it took me many years afterwards before I was comfortable looking at the tapes because it was very embarrassing to see how shaken and flustered President Carter was when I simply said Ronald Reagan's material to his face. And since then, I've realized every incumbent does everything they can to resist, avoid, quit early, not do debate practice. And so what I thought was <clears throat> weird about President Carter, I find out is all presidents have in common, and that is you are so busy, you are so overloaded as president that nobody ever gets in your face. There is no Joe the plumber in the White House. 
It doesn't matter whether it's Putin, Netanyahu, or the loudest person of all, Rahm Emanuel. When you're around the president, you don't waste his energy. You, you don't say hello, you don't say goodbye. He looks up, you say something, he answers, you leave. Um, the Michael Lewis piece about President Obama, now he wears fewer color suits, shirts, and ties, so he doesn't have to waste time he could be using on a problem of the world, deciding what to pack for the trip. Um, you're, you're, you're so, every moment of your life, your energy is conserved, so you know people are saying bad things about you. But nobody, as Dick Worthland, Ronald Reagan's pollster, wrote later, nobody questions your motives. Nobody looks you in the eye and says, I don't believe you. You're not telling the truth. You're lying. You, you don't have the energy for that and to do all the big problems. And suddenly, you have to have said to your face, you're a loser. And, the first practice debate session, after 11 minutes, President Carter said, isn't that enough? And one of my very good friends in the session was Stu Eisenstadt. And at one point, when He's I was later gone on to serve in many administrations. With, with, with honors all over. Yeah. You know, he was my friend, but he was part of the, the Georgia group. And he said to President Carter, you didn't know Reagan was Jewish, did you? You know, and it was like, it just sort of cut the ice a little, and everybody said, we're still with you. We're not on his side just because you're looking so bad. And at one point, President Carter explained the, the inflation that was going on was due to the Federal Reserve Board. And I said, you just heard the president blame the Fed. Before that, he blamed the Congress. Before that, he blamed the oil companies. Before that, he blamed the American people. The symbol of this White House is the president pointing his finger at someone else. And I thought at that minute, my kneecaps were going to go. <laughs> and I realized I wasn't doing this because I knew Reagan the best. I was doing this because I was expendable. I didn't have to deal with the president every day. Everybody around the president would read my memos, talk to me on the phone, but I wasn't inner circle. So he could get really, I mean, when Rosalind looked at me like, why hasn't the Secret Service taken me out? And Mr. Kerbo, his best friend, was sort of looking down. It didn't matter. It had to be done. And I was just told, <laughs> get him ready to face reality. Yeah. If only we could have sent you into for Obama, I guess. Well, every president has this. No president is good in the first debate. Right. What was unusual was how bully-like and effective the challenger was. Interesting. Um, let me ask you, I mean, a little bit more about the broad themes of your book and your, and your work on presidential campaigns. You know, everyone loves to talk about winners, why the person won. And you have this incredibly different look uh, you, you, in this book, really, you, you, you learn the lessons of campaigns, what works, what doesn't, um, through looking at the losers. Um, it's all about the losers. There's some, you know, scary stuff about just how out of touch Al Gore was, for example. Why do you do that? And, and can you tell us who is losing this election and what it tells us about this election? The second is the first is the best new question I've had all <laughs> in the last two months. Um, and I can answer it easily. The first one is, I wanted to show people there was more to understand about the inner workings of campaigns than they thought when they were over. But the problem is, once the campaign is over, you know who won, and it's a nice story of virtue triumphs or evil gets it this time. And so if I showed, and I figured if I can show you it could have been the other way by looking at the loser, it's easier to show you stuff you didn't know and it's easier to get a new, fresh look for myself. And it's, I started with Dewey and realized Dewey is one of the most, uh, Governor Dewey. Thomas Dewey, who lost to, to Dewey was, defeats Truman. Was so impressive, and I realized why he lost and why Truman won was a revelation that explains a lot about the Obama strategy, the Clinton strategy, all the incumbent strategies. And it just was easier to show people new things if you look at how Hillary lost and how Al Gore lost or how George H.W. Bush went from the hero of the world to the big loser in 1992. Yeah, who is losing this year? Oh, this year, it's Mitt Romney, without a doubt. 
the way he handled the primary, lurching too far to the right unnecessarily to deal with an impossible you know, challenger who didn't have chances, and then later waiting until the first debate to launch Romney release 3.0. I have been, and, and the heavyweight Republicans like Steve Schmidt who ran McCain agree, the Romney campaign was unusually clumsy. And this is a man, to show you how hard it is to be a candidate, he's one of the top CEOs ever to run for president. He's an extraordinarily successful CEO. But part of this job isn't being CEO, it's also being a visionary with a startup that you're selling a vision. And part of it is being a royal family. And he wasn't good at doing all three at once. What does that mean to be a monarch in this? Well, you're, when you're the president, your style and your wife's style, you don't have it inherited the way Princess Diana is given the rule book. Here's what the princess does. Here's what you do at tea. Here's how you eat. There's a rule book that's hundreds of years old that changes every 50 years if you're the royal family. But if you're the first family, you have to decide what is your style? What are the ways you're going to honor? Do you stay at the Marriott or the Hilton? Where do you eat? Everything that you do is a symbol to the country. Are you going to have gay marriages on the White House lawn? Or are you going to have a baptism in the Potomac? These things matter to the American people a lot. Well, let me, let me get Rick into this conversation. Um, um, Rick Hassan is the, uh, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. Of all the experts in election law, I, I think he's the best, and because I understand what he is saying, which is so important. Um, he writes the often quoted election law blog, and he has this terrific and also very scary book, The Voting Wars from Florida 2000, The Next Election uh, Meltdown. Now, we... Um, I'm going to ask you about that meltdown. Now, we never do this at Zocalo. We're, we're nonpartisan, and we, we don't have an official faith. But I, I, I was tempted to um, begin to, to not ask, start with a question, but to start with a prayer, uh, maybe to pause and bow our heads. Um, you and, don't mention which god, it's okay. And, and, no, and it's, and it's <laughs> the god of elections. And, and, it's, and I think it's to recite what um, Rick describes in his book as the election administrator's prayer. And after reading his book, I wonder if it might be the American voters' prayer, the American citizens' prayer. And that prayer is, Rick? Uh, Lord, let this election not be close. <laughs> I actually uh, end my, uh, when I present my book, I end with a, a Gregorian chant that plays through the PowerPoint and put up a ecumenical symbol and, and recite the prayer because I'm so worried that as I see the polls tightening, I, I, I just hope it doesn't come down to recounting the votes in Ohio or, or uh, Florida. Why, why, or should, why are close elections a problem for the country? Why are they a threat? Why do they have costs? Uh, let me just say before I go on, just, I'm so pleased to be here, uh, especially uh, uh, respect to Joe's work for many years and, and Sam's work I studied as a graduate student. I mean, it's just really, uh, it's just such an honor to share the stage with you. Close elections uh, uh, matter more now than in 2000. In 2000, um, you know, we, we went 36 days without knowing who the president was going to be. And um, it was a disaster for the country. Uh, uh, and it should have been a wake-up call. And so I, I describe in the book how after the tsunami in Japan, uh, then they chose to build the seawalls. So, you know, we're always trying to solve the last crisis. When it comes to our elections, we're not doing that. We didn't fix the problems of Florida other than fixing the machinery. She did a pretty good job getting rid of those, the worst machinery. Uh, we've learned the wrong lessons. We still have partisans in charge of our elections, that is Republicans or Democrats, and we know they administer elections differently. We know they administer elections to help their party in a lot of ways, and I, don't, I think often it's subconscious. The amount of litigation going to court has more than doubled since uh, uh, 2000. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the public's confidence in the fairness of the election process goes up and down depending on who wins and who loses. So uh, in 2004, when, when, Kerry defeats, uh, when Bush defeats Kerry, uh, you have seven times as many Democrats believing the way the system was run, uh, the way the election was run was unfair compared to Republicans. But in Washington State, where first the uh, Republican was declared the winner of a close governor's contest, and the Republican was declared the winner after a recount, and the court changed it, it was 68% of Republicans compared to 27% of Democrats who thought things were unfair. It's a powder keg, and social media, I actually argue, makes things worse. And it could actually move us from um, social protest on Twitter to social protest in the streets, should we be unlucky enough to have another election as close as Florida 2000. 
So if you know the, the folks at Caltech with the, the, the seismologists say we had a 99% chance of a big one in 30 years, what is the Hassan sort of prediction of a, a Florida-style meltdown or worse for the next 30 years? Well, for there to be another meltdown, what has to happen is like what happened in Florida. That is very close in the Electoral College. I don't care about the popular vote, uh, but the close in the Electoral College. And there has to be a state whose uh, votes are, electoral votes are critical to the outcome, and it has to be a problem in that state. And uh, you talk about Caltech. There's a Caltech-MIT voting technology problem that looks at these problems. And the head of that program, uh, Charles Stewart III, um, uh, I quote him in my book, he says uh, he thinks the odds of another Bush versus Gore in a lifetime are quite high. Uh, maybe not this election, but we're running at the margins. Things are very close. People are fighting for every vote. And if it's not going to be this election, it could be 2016 or 2020. We've had close elections in every election cycle since 2000. It just hasn't been for president. Coleman Franken. Uh, which, was, which was the Minnesota Senate race yes. between Al Franken and Norm yes. Coleman. Yeah, yeah. We, we, you, know, you can go through the list. There have been close elections that have gone into overtime uh, in states across the country. Now, um, you, this book is really incredibly intimate, very fun to read, but scary to read, a portrayal of you know, the basics of our voting, uh, the voter registration, who counts the votes, who administers elections. And again and again, you see things that we've essentially privatized and made part of capitalism. A lot of things that in other countries, you know, are sort of very clearly public sphere done by public folks. And I, and I guess I, the big question I have for you is, you know, all the issues of money in our society, concentration of wealth, the importance of money in donations, which is, you know, big donations in this campaign, uh, uh, you know, to politics. You know, it, how much is that? contributing to that privatization, fueling it, and, and, and how do you get to the kind of sort of more public system for doing this that you advocate when you're up against those kind of facts, which are also, you know, of course, yeah. political issues? Yeah, I don't think uh, that the money in politics problem, which is a real problem and we can talk about it in the Citizens United problem, yeah. is directly related to, to this problem, which is, if you look at just about every mature democracy, you know, Canada, Australia, UK, they have nonpartisan officials administering their elections, and they do it on a national scale. We have a problem that we have partisans running our elections, and, you know, so you have Republicans are trying to purge voters in Florida, and, and Democrats here in California are trying to have election day registration. This is fight over access versus integrity. Republicans yell voter fraud, Democrats yell voter suppression, and it fits into a broader polarization of our society. Uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans can't agree on common ground. So if you look at election reform that's happened over the last decade, it almost always happens along party lines. Uh, I tell the story of a, a, a guy uh, who this uh, week just passed away. His name is Mario Gallegos. He was a state senator in Texas. He had a liver transplant in 2007. Democratic senator. He had to, uh, his doctors told me he had to stay in the hospital in Houston, but he had to be transported to Austin and was on a hospital bed and was wheeled into the Capitol Rotunda to filibuster the voter ID law. I mean, this is how bitter our fights have become. Uh, I'd like to see us move to a national system, uh, nonpartisan election administration like they do in other countries, but it's, it's hard to find any common ground on anything, much less about the rules of the election. What partisans learned is you fight the game at the margin. So putting in a voter ID law might not affect a lot of votes. Democrats claim it affects a lot. I think a lot less than Democrats claim. But if it affects 1% of the votes and a skew towards Republicans in a very close election, that can make a huge difference. You actually suggest specifically a national election czar. You know, what would that be like? And do, you, do you have a nominee in mind for the job? I do have some nominees in mind. Uh, there are some <laughs> people who've run uh, um, election centers across the country who are very good. But how would we choose somebody who would be nonpartisan? What I suggest is, one of two ways. Either you have the president nominate someone confirmed by an 80% vote of the Senate. Anybody that could get through that would have to be above board. Or you have the Democratic or Republican leaders propose someone, and uh, they choose a third person. So there are mechanisms we could use, but we're so far from that. I would just like to see us make things a little less bad uh, you know, than to get to, to, to the ideal point. Sam, you want to respond to that? Yeah. Well, I thought state, I, I don't think how, I don't know how in a federalist society you could do this, but isn't there a way to have some group define good ballots in a way that if a local czar wants to get out of trouble, people can say there are, there's a, some certified like consumer union standards for a good ballot 
that is not confusing or that is honorable, so at least we can make sure it's not a deceptive ballot by yeah. some standard? Yeah, it's very hard. I'll give you an example of how hard it is. One of the things Congress did in 2002 when it uh, came up with money to get rid of those bad punch card ballots in Florida and get better voting technology is they set up something called the United States Election Assistance Commission. And I bet not, none of you in this room have probably heard of it. Its job was only to give advice, best practices. It's just to, very along the lines that Sam's suggesting. Right now, there are four members uh, uh, on the commission, four slots. All four slots are vacant. The parties have, uh, have not filled uh, any of them. At first, it started off as an agency. There were two guys, a Democrat and a Republican, who were really determined to make this uh, agency above politics. They were quickly pushed out, replaced by kind of partisan hacks on both sides, and, and we're not getting anywhere. Uh, there's an interesting point. I just want to add that. I'm sure Rick knows. The parties are often wrong about particular laws and whether it will help or hurt them. Republicans fought for decades against motor voter on the grounds that all the shiftless, lazy minorities would think of voting when they went to get their license. The fact is it registered far more Republicans because all over the South, the guys went in to get their license and people in the cities don't often as have cars. So the law that Republicans fought tooth and nail to stop actually turned it to their advantage. So a lot of the time the parties aren't even aware of which laws help them, but they think they know and they can raise money on what people think works. Absolutely. And I, that, that, is, that is actually something I point out. Uh, I don't know if you remember the U.S. attorney scandal when, uh, during the Bush um, era. A number of U.S. attorneys were fired um, for various reasons. But there was a guy, David Iglesias, very upstanding U.S. attorney in uh, New Mexico. Yeah. He was, uh, he was uh, a Jag Corps. I mean, like yeah. straight arrow. And uh, uh, he got fired. And an email came out from a Republican Party operative who was urging him to indict that acorn woman before the election for Heather Wilson's congressional race. You'll never find a better wedge issue, he said. I also point in my book to Donald Brazil trying to fundraise off claims of voter suppression. So both parties exaggerate this. I want to, I want to get a little more into money, but I did want to ask one thing of you, Rick, uh, on that. Um, you, know, you, you argue very convincingly in the book that so many of the claims about voter fraud are themselves sort of fraudulent. Um, and a lot of the, the Democratic concerns that you hear about voter suppression are often very overblown as well, and you're, you're so convincing, and you have all these facts and figures, and you're at a major American university, but then, you know, then I, you know, I, I read Town Hall, and, and there's a, you know, there's the most trustworthy man in America, uh, Chuck Norris, telling us all about the voter fraud. You know, Norris? Chuck Norris is telling us all about the voter fraud. He's trustworthy. He, apparently, <laughs> apparently so. And I mean, up against, you know, up against Chuck Norris, up against this sort of American, you know, this very strongly and tightly held um, kind of myth of massive voter fraud um, and our just sort of American love for conspiracies, how can you fashion sort of change in presidential elections, you know, when you're sort of up against these, these, these competing myths on either side. Yeah, when I, when I was in uh, junior high school, Chuck Norris came to my high school and uh, said that he could kill a man with his bare hands, but he would never do it. So I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to mess with Chuck Norris. So that makes uh, me the most trusted uh, man in America. Apparently so. But uh, um, uh, look, uh, there are people uh, on the Republican side who are making completely unsubstantiated claims about voter fraud. Uh, and there, there, was, uh, there are people on the Democratic side who are exaggerating. I just saw a report, 10 million Hispanics will be suppressed from voting, or 5 million Democrats will be It's just not true. And uh, it's hard to break through, especially to at those lawyers. times. Uh, well, uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, when you look at uh, the fight over voter ID, it's really not a fight over millions of voters. It may be a fight over thousands of voters. A very close election, that would matter. But... Um, uh, the, the rhetoric is so heated, and the presidential election time is maybe the hardest time to get it done, but of course, nobody pays attention to these issues when it's not the election. My phone's ringing off the hook now, but in January, uh, assuming we don't go into overtime, I'll have about three, <laughs> and, three I'll go back to three and a half years of well-deserved obscurity until uh, 2016. Yeah, I, I think the, the surge in these fears is not unrelated to the fact Three facts. Number one, our president, <clears throat> you may not have noticed, is African-American, which is different from being white. <laughs> Number two, <clears throat> as of this month, the United States does not any longer have a Protestant majority. And number three, 
the most important growing new group in America is Hispanics. And everybody <clears throat> under the age of 30 is so much more comfortable than everybody over the age of 70 with the new mixing. I mean, people who are young, you drive a Japanese car to a Chinese restaurant and then you stop for some tacos and drink some tequila and go to a French movie. It's all part of your world of getting to know each other. Older people are terrified by this and this is sort of slowing it for a little bit longer before it's not their America anymore. You see this, this fear of otherness at the same time Many people are thrilled and love it and don't see the distinctions. There are people who are older and are terrified of slowing it until they're dead so that they can feel it's still their part of it. Let me try to change gears and point us a little more explicitly in the direction of money. The money undergirds everything we're talking about. And, it's and the mother's well, milk of politics. politics. Uh, let me present you with, with two, the, the, the words of two great American philosophers who are no longer with us. Um, and let's and, and tell me who you line up more with. Wallace Simpson is reported to have said you can't be too rich or too thin. Um, but the, the late great Biggie Smalls saying of that we had no more money, more problems essentially. Uh, you know we've got more people contributing to campaigns than ever before. It's often, particularly in the small donor thing, it's you know that's the Wallace Simpson argument, right? That's good. There's more people participating, or is there just too much money in the system? Is there even too much money in the system for the good of the of the people in the system. First uh, of all, you can be too thin. <laughs> when, that was, when that was said before anorexia, and my daughter was a ballerina, and my motto was never trust a woman whose knees are wider than her thighs. Okay. But but to the question, I mean, do we have? I mean, is you know, you hear so much. There's too much money in politics. It's one of these sort of competing stories, and and but you also hear this this. This story of, oh, you know, all these people are small donors, it's transformation. It's an arms race. If we, had, if we had ended the Cold War with half as many nuclear weapons, not one thing would be different. But nobody wants to stop until the other side stops, and you can't control it. And you can't get money out of politics unless you can re re reverse the argument that anybody with money can spend all their own money. Everything else is based on that decision that a rich man with 100 million has the right to spend it all in his campaign. And the only way that you have any alternatives to that is with lots of donors and lots of spending and the horror story opened by Citizens United, which at least this time is hurting the Republicans more than the Democrats. You portray campaigns, presidential campaigns, as sort of fundamentally flawed, big, messy operations. They're each raising a billion dollars or so, you know, know. And, and I mean, can these, the, it doesn't seem like the things that you portray in the book as these very broken, you know, you know, organizations could manage a billion dollars. Well, in they can't. The, the whole way. aim is to make more noise than the other side and hope some of it matters. And this week in Las Vegas, there were more than 10,000 ads on the air. So far this year, the Las Vegas cable and, and television stations have shown 73,000 ads. That is just mind-numbingly useless. Nothing is cutting through that chatter. So now they're spending as much money on get out the vote because they've erased the possibility of the, the money now mattering. And if you had some way of limiting it, the parties, the balance of the parties wouldn't be really very different and we'd all be better off without the shakedowns the politicians have to do. What, um, what about you, Rick? Are you a Wallace or a Biggie? And, uh, I don't think the problem is the amount. Hmm. So if it's four billion or it's six billion or it's three billion, I don't think that's the issue. Although I'm, I'm glad I don't live in Columbus or in Las Vegas because <laughs> I'd be inundated with these ads. You know, living in Los Angeles, it's all about probably the same. It's all about the propositions as uh, what's on TV here. You're not, you don't see a lot of Romney or Obama ads uh, around here. Um, the problem is where the money comes from and what the cause is. Now, you know, I actually am less worried about money being spent on the presidential election than I am on congressional races. Uh, Why? If you drop a couple of million dollars into the presidential election, it's not going to be outcome determinative. Uh, Obama, Romney are not going to owe you 
everything. You're not going to be looking over your shoulder, worried about the next person who's going to run uh, you know, be, uh, when you're running in your next election. It's too big an office. But if you're running for Congress, suppose you're running for Congress and you really want, you want to impose a really tough anti-gaming law. Well, you know that Sheldon Adelson, you guys know Sheldon Adelson is this um, um, casino magnate. And he is, I think he's already spent or, uh, or committed to spending $70 million in this election, by far more than anyone's ever spent, even adjusting for inflation. He may hit $100 million. You're, you're going to not go forward with that anti-gaming measure because you're going to worry about what he's going to do next time. Or you're going to go forward anyway, and you're going to have to do all kinds of things for your friends to be able to compete. And so I think the biggest problem with money in politics, especially at the lower level, judicial elections, city council races, places where outside money is going to come in, the smaller the race, the more of the skew that's going to come from the money. But I mean, what is anyone getting for that money? The money isn't that money just a tra big transfer to broadcasters like my, like the people who pay me at NBC, or the you know my friends, the political consultants who all every home I've ever visited of a political consultant, at least in California, they have the most fantastic wine collections you've ever seen, and they get a percentage of the buy. I mean, what what are, what are what are donors getting for that money, and what are what are we really getting for that money? Well, you know, you'll never know. <laughs> And that's the Part point. of it you'll never know because our disclosure laws are now so, right. in California, they're better than on the federal level. But uh, in 2010, the first election after Citizens United and the rise of super PACs and the rise of these 501c4 organizations, uh, almost half the outside money, that is money not spent by the candidates or parties, was, came from undisclosed sources. We may be at 50% in this election. So you can't even figure out, as a journalist, what special deals are being made. Uh, without uh, having that data. The, let, me give an know. let me give an example of the kind of deals you get. Some of the best, uh, most revealed deals are from President Nixon in the days when a million dollars was a lot of money. Now, nobody can buy a revocation of Roe v. Wade. Nobody's going to buy a reversal of the Clean Air Act because there's too many people engaged in it. It's the fine print that you don't care about where the money gets spent. And Marie Stans, the Secretary of Commerce under President Nixon, went to the Wool Carpet Manufacturers Association. And the Federal Trade Commission was thinking of raising the percentage of wool you had to have to label a carpet wool by 5%. I think it was from 85%, you could call it a wool carpet, that it had to be 90% to call it a wool carpet. And he went to them and said, for a million dollars, we won't change the regulation. Otherwise, if we don't get a million dollars, you're going to have to put 5% more wool in every carpet. They got the million. <laughs> I mean, those are the things. I don't think there's a person I've ever known who would care whether their carpet at 85 or 90%. There's... There are more of those than I could imagine where the, these little regulations that are worth hundreds of millions that we don't understand. I mean, like Governor Romney, for example, happens to have $100 million in his IRA. I put, I max mine out every year, and I, <laughs> I mean, you know, my 1200 or whatever, I, I'm impressed with his investment skill. <laughs> well, let's get to that, because I'm mean, talking about campaign donations, but you know, front and center, there are all these issues of big money that are issues in the, in the, in the debate, you know, the 99% the income equality, the behavior of Wall Street, bailouts, you know, public debt, um, uh, and attempts to sort of connect all of these issues to you know, the campaign, to donors. I mean, your book is very good at sort of explaining how, um, you know, the campaigns follow patterns, and, and there are certain kinds of campaigns, but has this, has, has, you know, what happened in 2008, all these issues of money, is this made this campaign different in certain ways? Well, every campaign is different on some specifics, but the, the underlying theme that hit me like a ton of bricks when I started putting it together was there really are only three campaigns. Either you're a challenger, an incumbent, or a successor. And every challenger says, I'm hoping change. And every incumbent is more of the same, as you've been even hearing Governor Romney say about the president. And like it or not, you're no longer a transformative figure. You're more of the same, and what are you going to do? And if you're the 
John McCain or Al Gore, you're trying to hold the White House for the same party after defending somebody you're now going to say you're going to be different from. And the hard thing about the issue of 2008 and now is that there is nothing harder in the world to explain than why letting some jerk on Wall Street go from 200 million profit to 400 million bonus is good for Main Street or the little guy. Everybody agreed at the time, but the real radicals, that if you don't bail it out, we're all in deep doo-doo. But it's so much easier to say, you did it and I didn't get anything out of it, even though the world believed, I mean, whatever party you're in, the real experts said it was necessary, but I don't understand it. Isn't that trickle down? Why did I have to give some rich guy on Wall Street an extra 100 million in profit for the sake of the people in my neighborhood? I mean, is my Taco Bell gonna go under or my In-N-Out Burger to be more realistic? I mean, you know. <laughs> Is that going to go under if something happens? Lord, I hope not. Uh, well, but, but somehow <laughs> it had to be done and nobody understands it, so you're giving huge money to people, and where is what I'm going to get? The financial crises turn out to take a long time. Nobody can explain why. To, Rick, sort of a similar question to you. Is there a connection between what's happening in these worlds of high finance and these debates and, this, and what you're writing about, the, these sort of you know, constant, well-funded voting wars, this war that yeah. goes back to Florida, older than, longer than Afghanistan now. What well, we did see a lot of partisanship before the financial crisis. But remember, it was the financial crisis that gave us both the Tea Party and the Occupy movement. And I think the financial crisis and, you know, as the pickings get slimmer, the um, people fight more over what's left. You know, we're going to have to make some tough financial choices. People are going to come out on the wrong end. And so... It's a fight over what the future is going to look like. Uh, and so you have, uh, you know, there's an offshoot of the Tea Party movement called True the Vote, which is a conservative group that's going to go around the country and they're challenging voter registration rules and they may send challengers into the polls, primarily in uh, poor minority neighborhoods, Democratic neighborhoods. Democrats claim it's about suppressing the vote. Republicans claim it's about preventing fraud. It's all part of this, I think, um, tumult and change uh, born out of the financial crisis, high period of polarization. It's not surprising. We've had other periods in U.S. history like this uh, that we're, we're so polarized uh, and we're fighting over uh, less of what it remains. The Gilded Age was real polarized, wasn't it? Yeah. I was shocked when I taught some graduate courses that included a lot more American 19th century to realize the Know Nothing Party was a power that controlled 16 state legislatures and the single requirement to join the Know Nothing Party was to swear you weren't a Catholic. And that anti-Catholicism was as big a recruitment tool for the Ku Klux Klan as Negroes. racism, yeah. I mean, these things go very deep. And the Tea Party, a lot of the Tea Party is, I'd like to call, well, in California, everybody knows about not in my backyard. We need nuclear power, not in my backyard. We need a refinery, not in my backyard. The Tea Party is not in my lifetime. We've got to cut Medicare, not until I die. We've got to fix Social Security. I'm 55, wait until I'm gone. It's people fighting or afraid that Obamacare and all these things are somehow going to drain the piggy bank that's going to take care of them until they pass on. Let me ask you a, a question. You've, you've not only, you're both a scholar of campaigns, but you've, you've worked in five, um, consulted in, in different ways. and, and you know, it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, argue with me, that, that there, there's a fundamental money problem that each candidate of the two candidates has. Obama doesn't really have, or at least hasn't given a good answer on debt. You know, that's the big thing. And Romney doesn't have a great answer on the social value and, and, and the connection to governance of, of, this, of this world, this private equity world, in which he made, in which they made their money. And you would think that they might have spent some time coming up with answers by now, less than three weeks before election. What would you advise them if you were advising? Well, I think the answer on debt is to talk about jobs and explain that in a it should have been done a long time ago, but it, one of the problems in a campaign, you realize, is it takes an incumbent is like a battleship. It moves very, very slowly, but it can make big waves. Instead of shooting three-pointers in Afghanistan, you can commemorate shooting bin Laden. 
Instead of signing autographs in 2008, you can sign a treaty in 2012. But this stuff takes a lot of time to set up. And the president, a long time ago, should have been talking more about step by step, slowly but surely, and explaining how much of the debt was inherited debt, how much of the debt was part of the recovery from 2008, as opposed to this bailout will fix everything and we'll be on. You oversell at the beginning and then you're in trouble later. You have to be more careful. You know, Bill Clinton was, was really very lucky. He got out on day one and said, you're gonna beat the crap out of me, but we gotta raise taxes because it's worse than I thought and we gotta get interest rates down. And it gave the Democrats six very good years. President Obama decided to do the Obamacare, the, the health care plan. I'm, I'm personally very glad he did because it is, in fact, working a lot better with a lot less damage than people thought. But he didn't explain to people more about how long it takes to recover from a financial crisis. And if he had explained that as the jobs come back, the debt goes down, and we have a, a sober plan for giving people benefits without destroying the country than just taking away the benefits. He has to have a plan to beat a plan. So, and what would you be telling Romney, you know? The best line I've seen against Romney has not been used, but I saw it from you in the Atlantic, uh, you know, uh, how many jobs does a Swiss bank account create? I mean, how well, can that's, you... that's, the advice to Romney would have been, close the bank accounts in 2008 and explain how what you learned at, okay. Joe Kennedy, John, Ken John F. Kennedy's father, was put in charge of the Securities and Exchange Commission by Franklin D. Roosevelt. Joe Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, was a well-known crook and swindler and, and, and bootlegger. And people said, why are you putting a crook like Kennedy in charge of the Securities and Exchange Commission? And Roosevelt said, it takes a crook to catch a crook. He'll know how to fix things. Romney should have said, I know what I did at Bain, and here's what you do different as president based on what I've learned that the country has to do because what Bain does is a necessary part of capitalism, and what the president has to do is the other half of the job, and here's what I would do based on what I learned, as opposed to, I'm good at firing people, so make me president. <laughs> I, I mean, he's got a lot of talent, and I was actually shocked at how little he did with it. I want to ask Rick for a, a piece of advice in, in, in your area of expertise. I mean, you've looked at different ways of voting and having electing people all over the world. You know, what are the what are the biggest sort of most costly weaknesses in how we elect people in the United States, particularly presidents? And and you know, what would you change if you could? Yeah. Well, I, I, my new project now I'm working on is about political polarization. I was actually looking at the relationship between Congress and the Supreme Court. A little bit different mm -hmm. than your question. Um, but uh, one of the fundamental things that comes across is uh, from the 1970s on, what we've seen is that our political parties have become much more ideologically uh, aligned, right? So all the, the right now, the most, uh, I've got to say this right, the most conservative Democrat in Congress is more liberal than the uh, most con uh, liberal Republican. There's a complete divide. And uh, what ends up happening in periods of divided government like we have now is that there's not enough accountability. And so the president can blame the Republican Congress for being obstructionists. The Republicans in Congress can blame the president for having bad plans. And we as the public don't know who to vote for. Uh, you know, we have, a, we have a, a system of government that doesn't match our highly ideological politics. If I could wave a magic wand, I think I'd probably impose a parliament in the United States, mm -hmm. and we would have you know, something like the British system, and then, you know, you don't like what the Democrats have done after three or four or five years, kick them out and put in Republicans can actually put a plan in place. Now, when we have divided government, we have gridlock, things can't get done. And, so, and, and the prime minister would either be John Boehner or Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Interesting. But um, more would get done better for better or worse. You gave me new worries about, you know, the whole, you know, sort of Republican conspiracy theory of, you know, some voter impersonation showing up is just wildly improbable. But you do you do point to a few things that there are holes in how we do voter registration. Um, uh, poll workers are sort of risks in some ways. When we've seen fraud, it seems to be them. And, and even, 
you know, there are problems, and this is a state that's becoming majority vote by mail. Problems yeah. in that. Are there things we should be doing there to address yeah. those kinds of issues? So, uh, if you look at the amount of voter fraud that we have, it's relatively low. But when it happens, it, or let's say election crimes more yeah. broadly, it happens in one of two ways. Either it's crimes by uh, election officials. So there's a little uh, city in LA County where I live called Cudahy. And they just had a situation where two people pled guilty, who worked in City Hall. The ballots would come into City Hall. They steamed them open. If they were votes for incumbents, the, the incumbents in City Hall, they resealed them. If they were votes for the challengers, they threw them away. So one good way to steal an election is to steal be the one who counts it. the votes. The other way is through absentee ballot fraud. And the reason that absentee ballots are efficient is that you can collect them. You know how people voted. You can buy them. You can steal them out of people's mailboxes. Uh, and so there's a, uh, I talk in the book about a, a race for commissioner in Dodge County, Georgia, where the two campaigns had tables at opposite ends of the courthouse, and they bid on absentee ballots. They went for about $20 each. When you look at that kind of fraud, there's a group called News 21. It was a consortium funded by the Carnegie uh, uh, Foundation. They went to every prosecuting office in the country. They said, tell us about all your election crimes since 2000. So there was a fair amount of this election official fraud. There were 491 cases of absentee ballot fraud. And then there were 10 cases of impersonation fraud. Impersonation fraud, I go to the polls, I say, I'm Joe Matthews. Now, the reason this doesn't happen very often is because it would be a dumb way to steal an election. I have to hire a whole bunch of people, tell them to go into the polls, claim to be someone who's listed on the rolls. So he's either, months ago, I've sent in registration cards and said I'm somebody else. And or I know that Joe's terrible not there. to manage, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, there, and you can't verify if somebody voted. So, you know, it, it doesn't happen very often, yet voter ID is geared just at that. So if we wanted to get rid of the majority of voter fraud, that is fraud committed by voters, what we would do is we would get rid of vote by mail. Make it just available for overseas voters in the military or wherever, and get rid of uh, it, uh, people who are uh, you know, homebound. We don't want to do it because it's a cost benefit. It's very convenient. You look at the California ballot, there's 50 different things to vote on. You don't have time to do that all in the polling booth. You want to do it at home. So it's a cost benefit analysis. Same thing with voter ID. You gear up the machinery of the state to get all of these hundreds of thousands of people in places like Pennsylvania who don't, because a lot of them are not driving, who don't have the ID, don't have the birth certificate that's certified to get it, and for what? To stop a non-existent kind of fraud, and actually to push people in Pennsylvania into absentee ballots where you don't need the ID, and Pennsylvania has a history of absentee ballot fraud, so actually imposing ID in Pennsylvania will probably increase the amount of fraud. Ten years ago, so I wanted to count how many votes people in San Diego County made in one year because people said Americans don't vote. I wanted to make the point, well, I just voted 200 times on my ballot. So if you look at the county as a whole, how many votes, how many choices were offered that people took at the polls? I had to give it up because the county had 690 different ballots. You've got the water districts, the school districts, the police districts, the fire districts, the special districts, the state legislature, the state assembly, the county assessors, the sheriffs. By the time you're done, one county with uh, two million people has 600 different ballots that get put out. Last question before we go to the audience for questions, but um, you know, uh, Rick suggests the parliamentary system. Uh, a related question, you make a very good case in, the, in, your, in your argument that, that this presidential system, you know, selection system, campaign system is actually pretty good. At, it's gotten better at, at selecting a good president, but you know, I, I mean, come on. Let's better than the smoke-filled rooms. Right. It, the, the, the current system is better than the smoke-filled rooms because not that we're smarter than Boss Daley or the Republican bosses, but when they have to go through the grist mill over and over, Michelle Bachman, Rick Perry, oops, um, some of the Democrats who went, ran against Clinton and Obama, you get, you get it down to a few good ones. But, but my question is, admit it. I know, I mean, I know admit you studied Admit, admit this, what? Okay. I'm going to get to it. He's going to give me. You've studied this your entire life, but the presidency is just a bad idea, right? It's a huge security risk, one guy, huge cost of society from an It's a fantasy. It, it, the president is a fantasy. You run for the president as if you're going to be Merlin, and you're going to get there, and everything you say you're going to do is going to happen. And you get there, and you find out you're a senator with 17 votes who can push a red button. And by that I mean, if you say, I'll sign it, it only takes 50 senators. If you say, I'm against it, it takes 67. 
And all the people who said we're with you 100% in your party are lying. And all the people in the other party who said we wish you well, they're lying. <laughs> yeah, every senator thinks they should have been there instead of you, and the other party thinks you stole it. And on that happy note, let's uh, turn it to the audience. The Times just did a major piece about money in California's direct democracy, and then today there's news out about an Arizona group that's funneled about $11 million into Prop 32. Can you talk about the influence of money in the direct democracy system that we have here in California? You have the, you have the dueling Munger siblings that are going at it uh, with contributions on the ballot uh, with the various tax measures. And uh, I think direct democracy is a contradiction in terms. R democracy, where we're supposed to make all these decisions, is a knee-jerk system that brings out the worst in us. Like three strikes and you're out is sounds good, costs a fortune, doesn't really stop as much crime because people say it's not guilty because I don't want them away. And I think the notion that we should be voting on everything makes it impossible for anybody we elect in an office like governor or the legislature to do anything. The good example is the two-thirds rule of Prop 13. That means one-third can block anything. Let me, um, and, and maybe... Rick, let's take some, some of the Californians that uh, Joe Moore was talking about. Uh, for those who don't have the context, it's an Arizona group, won't disclose its donors, $11 million called Americans for Responsible Government, and the Mungers are uh, Charlie Munger Jr., conservative, uh, more conservative Republican, uh, uh, son of Charles Munger Sr., who is the Warren Buffett's uh, partner, and, and, uh, another, and, and his half-sibling, Charlie Munger Jr.'s half-sibling, uh, Molly Munger, who's a liberal, uh, wealthy, obviously, civil rights attorney in, uh, in Los Angeles. They've both given uh, a lot of money. Their, their mothers were both named Nancy. That's neither here nor there. Um, but um, what, what, what should we think about the money in the California yeah. system? I read the article in the Times and also the article in the Sacramento Bee. The one in the Times you know, pointed out, the, I think it was Bloomberg called it the Munger sandwich that, uh, uh, that Governor Brown was facing. Uh, but it's not anything new. You know, we've had millionaires throwing their money behind propositions. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger made it part of his uh, program. That's how he was going to go around. I'm much more ambivalent about the um, uh, initiative process than I think that Sam is. I think oh, it is. I'm pretty, I'm pretty skeptical. Yeah. I wish we didn't have it. I think it's a way to get around the legislature uh, when the legislature is stuck. I think it can serve valuable purposes. I think, for example, Adopting the redistricting commission in top two were things that the top two was forced through by Abel Maldonado so he could have a congressional seat. The, the former <laughs> lieutenant governor now running in yeah. the central but, coast. Uh, for uh, but I do think that it can serve a valuable purpose. Now, the money is different in ballot measures because if it's not a candidate controlled committee, at least there's not someone to corrupt. But the, the one thing I'd say about the money in California is that until this new Arizona story, it's been very well disclosed. So if, when you're driving on the freeway and you hear an ad, I was listening to, to um, uh, a lot of ads about for and against Prop 32. And you hear who's paying for the ads. That tells you a lot. So we had a proposition a few years ago about getting rid of public utilities, new public utilities uh, competing with other utilities. It's something I know nothing about. But all I had to hear was that the yes side was favored by PG&E. Uh, and that was enough for me to know to vote no. So the, the, we use that information as cues. And so the most important thing when it comes to money in initiatives, I think, is knowing the source of the money. Voters, uh, and Sam's work shows, voters use shortcuts, and the best shortcut, uh, I, was I went it's to lunch with my sponsors. mother, she said, the League of Women Voters said that this is good. So that, like, as soon as you hear that, you use those cues, and you know what to do. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree that the money cues are very valuable. I think the destructive, damaging part is when you look at states that have the initiative process and states that don't, it's harder to control the budget and to run the state with the initiative process because you, you pigeonhole this group for this school and this group for that expense, and all you can do is pile debt. It's much harder to control and govern the state when you can have all these initiatives. Sure. But to the point of an $11 million anonymous donation, we're talking about it here. I mean, to a, to a, mostly to a ballot initiative, Prop 32, which is sold, being sold as political reform, it limits, you know, corporations, especially unions. One would imagine that, that that's a neg maybe a negative for the it's people. It's probably California helping. money I mean, parked in Arizona to hide who did it. 
Yeah, now they could be. Um, I would bet on that. <laughs> I, I think that's right. In this last election, um, I did something uh, kind of interesting. I volunteered uh, in my county to be an election official. And uh, I was in charge of a poll. I had a, a series of clerks that uh, worked for me. Um, and I did this partially because I, I was curious about the process and the security of it. Um, and I, I'm happy to report that um, I think it's a pretty, pretty safe process. Uh, while I am a partisan, uh, I would also say that I, I'm a, a fierce defender of fair elections. And I think most people are. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what we can do. I'm not so worried at the poll level, but at the maybe precinct level or the county level, where it sounds like a lot of the fraud actually occurs, uh, how we can um, change that, maybe, maybe get some other people from the outside in to observe what goes on. $5.8 billion spent in, in a federal, in a presidential election. Um, how much were you paid for your work as a poll election official? $170. Okay. It adds up. <laughs> I don't think that, uh, Cal, put, putting aside small cities where there's not a strong uh, journalistic force, either newspaper or public radio, to be watching over shoulders where you see problems, California's got very well-run elections. I'm really not concerned about here. In fact, Secretary of State Bowen did, uh, uh, maybe five years ago now, a top-to-bottom review of all the election, election machinery to make sure that it wasn't subject to being hacked and all of this, and they did a very good job. But, you know, California is also a place where the Democrats uh, vastly outnumber the Republicans. It's not a battleground state. You know, I can't even tell you the name of the person who's running against Dianne Feinstein. I mean, it's just... Elizabeth Emkin. Okay, yes, yeah. so you can tell me. So, uh, the... Uh, I mean, is she even running ads? I mean, I don't know. No, she's not on the ad. Doesn't have the money. No, I meant uh, uh, Feinstein. I don't think I've seen an ad. No, no, but, neither. Um, yeah. It's the battleground states. It's the states with histories of partisan fighting where the things are, uh, the stakes are the highest and the dangers are the greatest. If there was something that you could have shared tonight that you didn't have a specific question to answer, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> That is the best, hardest question I've been asked in three months of a book tour. <laughs> come on, come on, come on, Sam. We, you, we, know, we, know, you're, we know you're dialed in what is deeply this? into democratic and politics. But that's tell not us, what she asked me. Something. That's not what she asked me. <laughs> that's, I, she didn't ask me to, to, to tell her why I'm voting for Obama. What's the best story in your book? Oh, my God. Is it, is it the disaster that was the campaign of Al Gore? I didn't realize it was that bad. I, it well, made no, no, me but there's an interesting thing. thing. There's an interesting thing <laughs> in my book, and I realized it the day after the last debate. Um, Governor Romney's, de in, nine, in 2000, Stuart Stevens, who's uh, Governor Romney's strategist, who's quoted very extensively in my book because he said very, very smart things in his book about 2000, The Big Enchilada, about the, the Bush campaign. Studying all of Al Gore's debates, they learned all of Al Gore's um, debate ploys, which were very tough, hard tricks that he used. Bullying. Bullying, yeah. and they used them. And I realized everything Governor Romney has been doing in the last two debates came from study, the Stuart Stevens studying of Al Gore. Um, in particular, ending your talk with a question for the other candidate and saying, if you saw President Obama, you haven't answered my question. What about my question? What about my question? That comes from what Al Gore used to do. And Governor Bush didn't believe that anybody could do that until they showed him the tapes. And they worked for weeks on what to do. If you ignore the person, it looks like you're afraid of them. If you answer the question, it looks like the other person is one. So you look at the person, you raise your voice, and then go back, as you do, without stopping what you're saying, you raise your voice and go back to the moderator, making it clear, child, I heard you. <laughs> but, you know, it's a very, this, this has very, nobody in the presidency debates. You debate in parliament, you go see the debates. I remember taking my daughter when she was three, and we saw a little bit of a, she was seven, I guess. We saw a little bit of the Thatcher against labor when she was prime minister. And afterwards, 
I said to my daughter, well, what did you think? And she said, that side was so much more mean than the other side. <laughs> and I realized how many ways you can watch a debate. Rick, to this question, there's something? I was going to say, when I was on the O'Reilly Factor during 2000, my three-year-old daughter at that time said, uh, told my wife that the other guy won. So, uh, you know, <laughs> not so big on debates. Uh, now, I would just I'd point out a, a principle from computer science that I use in my book a lot. It's called Hanlon's Razor. It says, uh, don't attribute to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. Uh, and the idea is that a lot of what we think of as uh, people trying to steal elections or uh, is really they don't know what they're doing. Uh, I they, tell the try, they do try. That, well, <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, I tell the story of uh, how a uh, millions of votes cast in Wisconsin. Race comes down to 200 votes for the state Supreme Court justice. The, the, Last the, year, the, yeah. The, the, the deciding vote on, in Wisconsin on the Supreme Court as to whether they're going to uphold or strike down this very controversial anti-union law. And uh, the Democrats, 200 votes uh, ahead in the middle of the night, you know, before all the absentee ballots were counted. The next morning, the uh, Waukesha County clerk holds a press conference and she says, you know, I was collecting all the uh, election results in my county as they came in on my laptop and I forgot to include the entire city of Brookfield. And when you include that, it's not the Democrat that's, da that's up by 200, it's the Republican who's up by 7,000. And then the, 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 she was a Republican, she used to work in the state legislature for the guy who was the candidate. Uh, and then the, the Democrat, uh, who's supposed to be watching over her shoulder. You don't have a Democrat and Republican working together. The one who's supposed to be watching over their shoulder. The election judge, the, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, she says, um, um, she said everything looked fine, and then the next day she issues a statement through the local Democratic Party. She was the Democrat. She said, I'm 80 years old. Uh, I don't know where the numbers Kathy uh, came up with, uh, came from. They seem to add up. I'm still very, very confused. And they did an investigation. And, uh, you know, uh, it turned out that it was, yes, it was incompetence, not, there was no evidence that uh, Nicholas was trying to cook the books. The numbers added up from what came in from each county. But we're very, in this partisan era, we're so apt to attribute any kind of mess up in our elections to somebody trying to steal the election. It's well, I'd like to point out William Rehnquist, who was our chief justice of the Supreme Court, got a start in politics and election intimidation in Arizona, going to Hispanic polling places and sort of swaggering and asking for IDs and making trouble when he was a young Republican wannabe. It's always Arizona, isn't it? My name's Bob Kretzmer. And thank you very much for coming to Bakersfield. I really appreciate it. Uh, my question is, since I have been voting, um, race, from my recollection of our presidential elections, became a factor in 1980. I think race was a factor with Ronald Reagan's Southern strategy for the South. In 1988, Michael Dukakis, the ad, the prison furlough ad was, was a big factor. We now have an African-American president. Have we evolved to the point where race is no longer a factor in our presidential elections, or is there any subtleties that we're not aware of that still racism, make race a factor? To quote an old activist from the 60s, racism is as American as apple pie. It's changed a lot as the demographics of the country have changed, and today there are a very, very large number of younger people for whom Barack Obama is the new normal. But in, well, I did the polling in 2008 for The Economist magazine, and one of the best predictors of which otherwise Democratic voters would never vote, were gonna vote for McCain, was the people who did not think that interracial dating was a good idea. And there's a lot of subtleties that go along. Not all of the negativism about the president is race. But this is the first time in, when attitudes about health care have been correlated with racial feelings. Um, after the empty chair at the Republican convention, in several places in the American South, people hang an hung an empty chair on a noose from a tree. Now, the difference today is it's not what it was. I mean, it's, a, it's still there, it's smaller. I mean, I never thought, I'm a Jew, I never thought the day would come when being a Jew was easier to run for president than being a Mormon. 
I didn't understand as a Jew that a lot of people don't think Mormons are Christians. I was shocked because at UC San Diego, there's a lot of graduate students who did their mission work and now want to be professors who study whatever country they were in. I had no idea they're considered a cult because they're newer than, I mean, my people crossed the Red Sea and got <laughs> food from heaven. Other people rose from the dead. Somehow the magic underwear is different. And when I, I asked a reporter and the, the reporter said, what is the difference? I said, oh, after 2,000 years, you get grandfathered in. <laughs> I was, um, if you look at African-American support for the Democratic Party, it's extremely high. There was one poll that had Romney at 0% among African-Americans. Um, another poll I saw just the other day, 97% support for Obama. And so there's a, and Hispanic support, uh, not quite as great, but still uh, leaning Democratic, especially in places where Democrats are fighting for that. So there is this overlap. Um, and then it's, so it's hard to know sometimes where uh, attacks on Democrats end and, and attacks on race begin. I'll just give you one example from the voting wars that's happening right now. In uh, African-American neighborhoods in Cleveland, Cincinnati, uh, and I think in parts of Wisconsin, uh, ads are going up, anonymously funded, that say voter fraud is a felony. You could spend uh, uh, you know, up to five years in jail or something like that. And um, uh, they're only going up in African-American neighborhoods. And, uh, uh, and the question is, is this racist? Is this voter suppression? It's a truthful message. Voter fraud is a felony. Is this suppressing the vote? And now both sides are using this as part of the fight. And it's really hard to know, is this a racial appeal? Is this an anti-democratic appeal? Because they converge uh, uh, in that way. Okay. Uh, with that, please join me in thanking our two speakers. And thank you so much for being here.